This is a podcast by The Straits Times. A recent investigation led by The Guardian news outlet concluded that more than 90% of rainforest carbon offsets issued by VERA, the world's main certification body for offsets, were worthless. Conservation groups, carbon exchanges, and forest carbon project developers all hit back, saying the investigation was deeply flawed. The dispute has highlighted once again deep concerns about the integrity of many carbon offsets from projects that seek to protect or restore vulnerable tropical forest areas. The offsets are meant to cut greenhouse gas emissions while also funding the projects. So are rainforest carbon offsets for real or just too risky for buyers? With us today is Professor Ko Lian Pin, Director of the National University of Singapore's Centre for Nature-Based Climate Solutions, who has been working to boost the integrity of nature-based carbon offset projects. Welcome to the show. Hi, David. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Let's begin with some basics. What is a forest carbon project and how do they cut carbon emissions? A forest carbon project uh, usually could be one of of two things. The first is a project that protects a standing forest, which means an intact forest that already contains some carbon in their, for example, their trunks, their branches, their leaves, or underground in their roots or even the soil below the forest. By protecting that patch of forest, you would be avoiding the the loss of the trees, the loss of the carbon uh, from the loss of the trees, from deforestation essentially. And therefore you are contributing to to avoid that emissions and contributing to climate change mitigation. The second kind of forest carbon project are what we call uh, reforestation or afforestation projects. And that is the scenario where you would have a piece of barren land, for example, and where you would start planting trees or, or growing a new forest, essentially. And as the forest grows, uh, it sequesters carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through photosynthesis, and it locks the carbon up in, again, their branches, trunks, leaves, roots, and soil, um, therefore uh, reducing the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere and again, contributing to climate change mitigation that way. So those are the two main types of forest carbon projects. Right. And quite a number of these projects fall under RADD, which stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation. This is a kind of like a, a standard, I guess, uh, backed by the UN. Maybe just tell us a tiny bit more about that. Sure. So uh, RED+, plus, or RADD+, plus, refers to the first type of project that I just described, the first category of projects where we... Uh, would be implementing a project to protect a standing patch of forest uh, that uh, would be under threat of deforestation or degradation. And a key uh, consideration there in terms of understanding the value of that protection or that intervention is to know uh, what would have happened to the forest if not for our intervention, our investing in the protection of the forest. For example, whether the forest will be cut down tomorrow to be converted to an oil palm plantation, or would there be illegal loggers coming in gradually over the next month or two or years to gradually degrade the forest by cutting away the the most valuable timber species, for example. So by protecting the forest against those activities, we are protecting the carbon that the forest contains. Now, each offset represents uh, a ton of carbon dioxide or CO2. 
So what are these offsets used for? The offsets can be used for several things. And primarily today, when we think about offsets, we usually think about companies purchasing offsets or carbon credits from projects such as the ones that we have been talking about, the Red Plus projects or reforestation projects, and use these credits or offsets to offset or sort of neutralize the emissions, the carbon emissions coming from the, uh, the supply chain or the value chain or the operations of that company or that business. And usually that is done uh, to help the company uh, achieve some kind of climate uh, goal, for example, to help them achieve the ambition to become net zero by a certain time in the, in the near future. So that, that's one, one common usage of uh, carbon offsets. Now, typically these projects in areas with large amounts of carbon in the forest and or in the soil, such as peat swamps. So just how much carbon are we talking about? Um, it depends. It depends uh, very much on the type of forest. It depends on the geography. And importantly, in the context of protecting these forests to generate carbon credits, it also depends on the threat that these forests are facing. Um, okay, so what do I mean by each of those three things? The type of forest, uh, there are actually several different types of forests, uh, even within our region of Southeast Asia. For example, when you go around the central catchment area, you'll be familiar with the, uh, the rainforest, the tropical rainforest that, that we have in Pukatima, the central catchment a nature reserve. Uh, we also have another kind of forest called the freshwater swamp forest in the Nisun area. Uh, we, if you go to Pulaubin, you would have uh, encountered uh, some mangrove forests, for example, in Chik Jawa. Uh, and then in other parts of Southeast Asia, there are also peatlands or peat swamp forests. Each of these different types of ecosystems or forests uh, would have different concentrations or densities of, of carbon stored either above ground or below ground. And, and it varies uh, from geography to geography as well. So that, that's one um, important factor. And the other important factor is the uh, threat that these forests are facing. Uh, because in the context of generating carbon credits from them, uh, technically, uh, you would also only be able to claim that you are protecting a certain amount of carbon credits uh, from a business-as-usual scenario or based on a business-as-usual scenario or what we call baselines. What I mean by that is if a forest is not under any threat of loss, for example, then technically you cannot claim that you are preventing the loss of that forest or the loss of carbon from the loss of the forest. Uh, you can only claim that if you can somehow make a case to show that if not for your intervention or your investment, the forest will be gone over a period of time in the future. Yeah, so that leads neatly into the next question as to why these projects have been so controversial you know, and how can you be sure the emissions claimed to have been reduced or avoided are actually real and, and whether these projects are actually reducing deforestation. Yeah, so, so that's really the crux of the problem, right? As I mentioned, the project developer or the investor or the people who are investing in protecting these forests, if their intention is to generate carbon credits for sale or for trading in, in carbon markets, uh, they will have to come up with a baseline scenario. What would have happened if I haven't come in and protect this forest? As you can imagine, that is a very challenging thing to do. Uh, essentially, you, you almost would need to have uh, some kind of a crystal ball, right, to be able to predict the future. 
what would have happened had I not come in and protected this forest. There are several ways to do it, several different methodologies. For example, one uh, widely accepted uh, methodology at the moment is to look at historical deforestation rates, uh, either within the petroforest itself or in its immediate vicinity. So based on historical deforestation rates, one could potentially then predict or project a similar kind of deforestation scenario into the future. And based on that, can claim or make an argument that if you come in and protect the forest, you would be able to uh, avoid that scenario. And by avoiding that scenario, you can even calculate the emissions of carbon that would be avoided by your intervention. Um, so that's one uh, common methodology. But it's very challenging, as I said earlier. Uh, you, you really have to make a very convincing argument about that baseline scenario or future scenario. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Right. But of course, these there are standards that have been in place for quite some time, and they're always evolving. So this is not like a, a, new, a new thing. And also, I think a lot of these projects are quite complex. They take a long time to develop if they're done right. And of course, uh, the projects... Uh, regularly, regularly sort of audited, particularly those you know under Vera or Gold Standard. That's part of the deal. So that means a lot of time, money, and effort is invested. If that's right, and so you know there is an impression that these are some of these projects are like fly by night, shady deals. But I, I think for a lot of them, that's just not the case. If that's if that's correct, yes, that's correct. For projects to be traded in most voluntary carbon markets these days, and and to be acceptable by whoever would be buying these carbon credits uh, for their use, especially if the usage is to allow the companies to claim that they are meeting some kind of a climate target, like a net zero target. The companies or the buyers of these credits would be looking out for high quality carbon credits. And usually that means they have to be uh, at least certified by internationally accepted standards bodies. Uh, one of them is Vera which is an NGO, a nonprofit based in the US. The other is Gold Standard, which is just another standards body. There are also um, industry-specific ones like Corsia, which is a standards body specific to the, uh, the, to the aviation industry. So what these standards bodies uh, do is they, they come up with a, a very detailed, very comprehensive uh, set of methodologies, requirements, that the project developers would have to adhere to in developing these projects. And these are concerned with not just ways of measuring the amount of carbon that the forest contains, but also in terms of engaging with the local communities to make sure that there are benefits accrued to the or delivered to the local communities, that the project delivers other core benefits as well, such as biodiversity conservation and so on. So as you said, David, a lot of effort and resources have gone into continuously improving these standards. They are the some of the best standards that we have at the moment, which is why partly why they are so uh, widely adopted. Uh, of course, on the other hand, they are not perfect. Uh, there are still a lot of scientific uh, advancements that could be incorporated to raise the standards even further. Uh, for example, in how we determine the baseline scenario how we can improve this crystal ball that we need to be able to look into the future so we get a better and more robust, accurate understanding of what would have happened otherwise, which in turn uh, would get us uh, more accurate estimates of the amount of carbon 
credits that could be generated from that project. Uh, so it's not perfect by any means. Uh, these standards, we can still continue to invest in improving them. And then we should not let perfect be the enemy of the good. But, but the, the key is that the good must, must continuously get better. So we must continue to support these schemes and improve them. Uh, not just supporting them, not just the buyers of the credit supporting them, but the suppliers, the governments, and then civil society. I think we could all contribute towards raising the bar in terms of carbon accounting and monitoring. So that leads nicely also into the Guardian's claim that more than 90% of these uh, rainforest carbon offsets are worthless, that they haven't reduced or led to significant reductions in deforestation. Now, these claims, of course, as you know, has faced a lot of criticism. What's your view on uh, the Guardian article and the scientific or the research sort of behind it? So those are actually two separate issues. I think the Guardian, in my personal opinion, the Guardian article has misrepresented the, the science that it cites the three uh, scientific articles uh, of research that it's, uh, it's cited. Having read those three scientific articles, I cannot come to the same conclusion that you know, more than 90% of uh, carbon projects worldwide are questionable. I, I think I can see how there could be many carbon projects in the world or a large proportion of carbon projects in the world that might not have delivered on their promises you know, in terms of this baseline that I mentioned. But... I don't see that being 90% of all carbon projects worldwide. So that's my opinion on the Guardian article. It's, in my opinion, it's, it's a misrepresentation, a misunderstanding of the science that is, is cited. Uh, and then, but in terms of the science that is cited, I, am, I have I've read through them and I think they are very sound, especially for the two that have been peer reviewed and published. I understand one of the articles has not gone through the peer review process yet. But for the other two that have, um, they are robust. There might be some misunderstanding in terms of what they are trying to do, though. The two scientific articles are doing what we call um, impact evaluation. So what they are doing is they are trying to look at the performance of those carbon projects based on a certain way of benchmarking them against a set of controls. Uh, so they are essentially they are looking backwards in time, you know, to the point where the project started uh, until sometime in the subsequent years. Uh, whereas for Vera, in terms of their methodology, what they are doing is they are looking forwards in time, right? The crystal ball that I described. So because of that, the the two the two objectives are slightly different. Uh, they are also using different methodologies uh, to achieve what they want to do. So there could be uh, some unsurprising and expected discrepancies in the outcomes of those two sets of analysis. I don't think they are contradicting one another. They are just accomplishing two things. So in terms of the science, I, I think they are quite robust, but it's just the Guardian article that has, I think, misrepresented the science. But there are, I guess, still valid concerns about the integrity of forest carbon offsets overall, which you've, you know, you've already mentioned that. And recently, Carbon Project rating company uh, Silvera published an in-depth analysis of about 85% of Red Plus credits on the market. It found that 31% of the projects representing 143 million issued credits or tons of carbon that the firm has rated are of high quality, um, whereas you know the remainder, about two-thirds, uh, were of, of, a, of a lower quality. So that suggests that there is still more work to be done 
to improve the quality of these projects. And I guess that kind of matches with what you're, you're saying. I mean, it, at least Silvera is putting a number on it there. Yeah, exactly. I think Silvera is, is, uh, is doing a great job. It depends really on what is meant by high quality, right? And uh, from my understanding of Silvera's service uh, or analysis, uh, they do have uh, different categories or different grades of, of quality. And, and so what they are putting out in terms of the 30% being in the high category, high quality category, uh, I think that that sounds uh, reasonable. Of course, it, it also depends on uh, how they come up with their metrics of quality, which uh, may or may not be acceptable by all you know, segments of the, of the market or the community. But, but I think overall, uh, that's uh, a very good start and, and they're doing a great job. And I think as long as it's transparent in terms of how they come up with their measures of quality, uh, that, that should be the way to go. Um, but having said that, I, I think the one, one point I would like to emphasize is uh, when we talk about quality, uh, the, the highest quality carbon credit or offset is, is actually the one that we don't need. Because uh, if we take a step back, uh, the most important thing that we all need to do is to, to find ways to decarbonize, right? Uh, the hierarchy of, of, of what we can do, of our actions. The first thing that we need to do is to decarbonize. Move away from fossil fuels, uh, reduce energy waste, wastage, increase energy efficiency, do whatever we can. And then only when for the emissions that are unavoidable, at least for now, for the immediate future, we can think about carbon offsets uh, to try to uh, to mitigate the, the, the emissions of our operations, uh, the businesses' operations. So again, I think the highest quality carbon credit is the one that we don't need. Yes, and that's a great point to end on because carbon offsets are not meant to be a free pass for, for polluters or for anybody, really. It's meant to be kind of like the last mile, the, the final bit of decarbonization that, that's the hardest. Offsets are then meant to sort of fill that gap. But I think that's often sort of misunderstood by some people that it's, you know, it's 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 a get out of jail free card. You can keep on polluting by just by buying offsets. If that's right. Yeah, I completely agree with you, David. Great. So thank you very much for joining us today, Profco. It's been great to have you. No problems. Pleasure. Thank you. That was a podcast by the Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.